uses their gifts to serve, even from painting the walls to compiling a, a binder for us and all the other ways. And so thankful for the body of Christ this morning. So thank you for all that you do. This church has uh, been a blessing to me for sure. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then as always, we'll open the Scripture and hear from heaven as we study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to You that You have loved us with this everlasting love. Lord, You loved us before the foundation of the world. You have lavished that love upon us in time by bringing us to Yourself in Your sovereign grace. You have made us new creatures in Christ. You have forgiven us of all our sin. This is the power of the cross. All of our iniquities, all of our transgressions, all of our guilt dealt with at the cross when our Savior died and bled for us. And our desire is to see more of His glory, more of His beauty, more of His majesty in the Gospel. That's what we want, Lord. We want more of You. We want to worship You. We want to respond to the truths that we hear in obedience and praise and worship. And we desire that our worship would be acceptable in Your sight, not because of any inherent piety of our own, not because of our own godliness, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Your grace and the finished work of Your Son on the cross. And now we desire, Lord, as Your people, as Your church, Your saints, we desire to do what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 10, to tear down every stronghold, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to be, as we talked about a few weeks ago, doctrinal detectives. We want to test the spirits. We want to examine things carefully, discern truth and error, and we want to destroy error, and we want to defend the truth. And I pray that we would do that as a church and as the people of God. And I pray that You would give us grace to have a more deep and profound understanding of the Word, and that we would hate that which is erroneous and love that which is true. Or give us a greater love for the truth. Help us as Your people to continue to grow and to make progress and joy in the faith, that our faith would be enlarged, that our love for one another would grow ever greater and excel still more and more, and that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith and that we would be grounded and rooted in love so that we would know the infinite love of God for us. And now as we open the Scripture and as we read and as we study and as we dive deep into Your Word, we pray that that anointing that we have from You, the Holy Spirit, would lead us into all truth, teach us all things, and illumine our minds that we might understand, love, and obey the truth. We pray these things for Your glory. Amen. Well, all right, if you uh, have a Bible, we're still working our way through 1 John. 1 John, so you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And for this morning, we come to verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Really, verses 7 through 21 kind of make up one long section, one rather large portion of Scripture. And the theme of that section is love. Love. A form of the word love is used 27 times in these 15 verses, and 11 times alone in verses 7 through 11. This is clearly a passage dominated by the concept of love. And as I was in the study this weekend, uh, trying to figure out the best way to deal with this long portion of Scripture, I kind of struggled a little bit because it's so long, and you know me, uh, typically a verse is too long for me to finish in a week, but uh, how would I get through 15 verses in one Lord's Day? And so I looked at it and thought about it, and we could deal with this as one passage, one section, one paragraph, what we would call a pericope, uh, one text with one unit of thought, one outline, uh, ideally one long sermon that for me would be broken into parts, but after looking at it, I figured it would be best to break it up into three sections. Three sections. So this, this week we'll get 7 through 11. Next week we'll get 12 through 16. And the following week we'll get 17 through 21. And you say, Jamie, are you sure you can get through all of those in three weeks? I don't know, but we'll find out. But that's the plan. That's the plan. And just a little bit of a preview. Verses 7 through 11 provide us the reasons for love. Reasons for love. 
Verses 12 through 16 will give us the evidences of abiding. And verses 17 through 21, John will just lay out a few more features on love. So, for this morning, verses 7 through 11, let me read the text for you. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As I said before, the obvious theme of this passage is love. In fact, the key to the text comes in verse 7. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. This is about love. And then John is going to end this long section the same way he begins it with that very same command. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 he writes, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We are commanded to love, to love others, and more specifically to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are of the household of the faith other believers. Scripture constantly issues this command. This theme of love is a reoccurring motif in Scripture. And this isn't even the first time we've seen the command in 1 John. John has much to say about the topic of love. I told you there are three tests in 1 John. The theme, of course, is assurance. The theme is coming to know for certain that you have eternal life. And there are three tests that John gives us by which we can have that assurance. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. Christians believe the truth, obey the truth, and love in truth. And John's focus is throughout these five chapters dominated by those three tests. And of course, again, we enter into that third test, the social test. Back in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, John referred to love as both an old commandment and a new commandment. An old commandment and a new commandment. In chapter 3, verse 11, he refers to it as an old message. One which we've had from the beginning. The beginning. Ever since the beginning of Scripture, Leviticus 19.18 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the very beginning portion of the Bible. God's people have always had this command to love. So it's old. But it's also new because it's new in Christ. We're to love like Him. The old commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment is love your neighbor as Christ loved you. In verse 18 of chapter 3, John told his readers there, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, don't just say it, show it. Actions speak louder than words. (coughs) Show that you love sincerely by what you do. So John has said much about love. He's commanded us to love. He's defined this love, described this love, illustrated this love. And he's not finished yet. He still has much more to say about love in the remaining chapters. This constant focus on the theme of love has earned John the title, the Apostle of Love. The Apostle of Love. If Paul was the Apostle of the Gospel, then John was the Apostle of Love. But not only are we commanded to love in 1 John, we're also commanded to love throughout the rest of Scripture, all throughout Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments. As I said, Leviticus 19.18 commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus reiterated that in the Gospels, didn't He? What did He say the greatest commandment is? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments upon those commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Then in John 13.34, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. There's that old commandment of love made new in Christ. We are to love like Him. 
So Jesus taught us about love. But the Apostle Paul also taught us about the necessity of love. In Romans chapter 13, verse 10, he wrote this, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's simple. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal his belongings, you're not going to kill him, so on and so forth. And so love is the attitude that fulfills the law. In chapter 12, he actually defines that love. You can go there for a minute, Romans chapter 12. But in Romans 12, verses 9 through 13, Paul is going to define love for us. Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. That sounds like what John said back in chapter 3. Love not in word only, but in deed and truth. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's what love does. Love hates evil. Love clings to what is right. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love is devotion. Give preference to one another in honor. Love is humility. It puts others first. Verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Love passionately serves God and others. Verse 12, Paul adds, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Love meets needs. Love is hospitable. Love opens up one's home and one's life to share with others. That's love. That's love. That's the kind of love that Paul calls us to, and it's the kind of love that John calls us to. Of course, then there's that wonderful chapter on love that we know as 1 Corinthians 13. I don't have time to read it all to you, but you can turn there for just a minute and I'll read verses 4 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. <clears throat> Paul says, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. Verse 5 does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. That's the kind of love that we are commanded to express to others. Let me read one more passage to you. You don't have to turn there. You can go back to 1 John. I'm going to read Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. One more passage by Paul. He writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's love. That's love. It expresses itself in compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, patience, grace, forgiveness. That's love. And the result is that it produces unity and peace. It's the perfect bond of unity. So Paul says, put on love. But the Apostle Peter also issued this command in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another because love produces forgiveness. Love forgives. Then in verse 9 he added, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. That's love. That's the love that as the people of God, we are called to exhibit. The problem in Asia Minor in John's day is that there were a group of false teachers known as the Gnostic heretics who were essentially purveying their own counterfeit version of the Christian faith. And these heretics were not defined by love, but indifference. They were puffed up. They were arrogant. They were the epitome of what Paul said when he said love or knowledge 
puffs up. They thought they were better than these low-level Christians who had yet to attain to the secret knowledge that they possessed. So John, once again, underscores for these believers in Asia Minor that true Christians, unlike the heretics, are to be marked by love. Love. Love is an essential mark of a true Christian. So we are called to love. Love is a constant commandment throughout the Scripture. And in this passage, John explains to us why love is so important. He gives us three reasons for love. Three reasons. We are to love one another because of the source of love, because of the benefit of love, and because of the example of love. The source of love, the benefit of love, and the example of love. And we'll look at these one by one. So first of all, the source of love. The source. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Again, we see that familiar term that John has used so often. The word beloved, term of affection. John is about to address them on the topic of love. And he becomes an example of the love that he calls for. He loves those to whom he writes, and he wants these saints to imitate him and love one another. But why? Why should we love? Do you need motivation to love this morning? Why? Well, he says, let us love one another, for love is from God. Love is from God. The word for there translates the Greek word hati. It's a conjunction that could be translated because. It's a word that introduces reason. Here is the first reason that you should love one another. Because God is, love is from God. Love is from God as the source. He's the fountain fountain of love. Just as water comes from a spring, just as fruit comes from a tree, just as heat comes from the sun, so love comes from God as the source. He is the source. It's from Him. The word from here, the Greek preposition ek, it could be translated as from out of or out of. John is saying that love comes out of God. It's a word that denotes source or origin. God is the origin of love. He's the source of love. The word could even denote cause. God is even the cause of our love. Love comes out of Him. In verse 8, John's going to go on to say, God is love. God is love. That's perhaps one of the more well-known phrases of Scripture. He reiterates that in verse 16. And then in verse 19, he adds, We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. God is love as to His essence. It is one of the essential attributes or characteristics of God. By the way, there is a distinction between these two statements. God is love, but love is not God. Got that? God is love, love is not God. Just as grass is green, but green is not grass. Right? Green is a property of grass, but it's not itself grass. Love is one property of God, one of His essential characteristics, but love is itself not God. God defines love. There has been always a perfect love expressed from eternity among the persons of the Trinity, or as John MacArthur says, that from eternity God has existed in perfect Trinitarian solitude. There's never been a moment in eternity past in which God was lonely or in which God did not express love. There's a perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God created the world primarily to display the love of the triune God and the grace and the glory of the triune God. And as a love gift, He provides the redeemed to His Son. This is a Trinitarian love. Not only that, but then you could add the fact that God is the one who produces our love. He's the one that loves us. He's the source. The only reason you and I will ever love God, the only reason you and I will ever love one another is because of the love of God planted in our hearts in regeneration, in the new birth. God plants His own love 
in us. We love because of His love. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Yahweh told the Israelites, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. In other, words, in other words, the only reason the Israelites would ever love God, the only reason any person will ever love God, is because He circumcises our hearts to love Him. That's the new birth. That's regeneration. A circumcised heart. We don't need to revisit that topic, do we? We, we all remember my infamous Easter sermon on circumcision, and we talked about that. So suffice it to say, as a summary... That this is a way of saying God, in the new birth, cuts the wickedness of our hearts away. God gives us new hearts with new affections that love Him and love His people. That hate sin and love righteousness. It is a radical transformation of our inner person. So God then is the source of love. He produces His own love in us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul said this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to teach you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. We don't need to be taught to, to love, in one sense, because we're already supernaturally taught to love by God. How? Paul gives us the answer in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We are supernaturally taught by God to love because in the new birth, God pours His own love into our hearts. That love is communicated to us by the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. That's why Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Love. The Spirit is the one who produces this love in us. It's a natural fruit of the new birth. And an inevitable consequence of a transformed heart. Which means, if your life is devoid of love this morning, if you lack affection for God and longing for God and love to His people, then you need to be born again. Something's radically wrong with your heart. You need God to give you a new heart and plant His own divine love in you. And my hope is that today, as you hear the Word of God preached and the Gospel explained, God would give you that new heart so that you would love Him and love His truth and love His people. But that's the issue. That's why... You ever, you ever wondered why you've got to call your friend you've been trying to share the Gospel with and he says he's a Christian? You've got to call him every Saturday night and say, man, please come to church. Please come to church. You ever wondered why that they don't show any love or longing for the things of God? Why is that? Why is that? Is it because you're just more spiritual than they? The answer is yes. You're spiritually alive. They're spiritually dead. By God's grace, you've been made alive. The people who don't love the things of God remain in spiritual death. But love comes from God. He's the source. We're never more like God than when we love like Him. He is the source. But that brings us to the second reason for love. Second reason. We should love not only because of the source, but also because of its benefit. The benefit of love. Look at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The word and there introduces reason number two. John is going to draw a logical conclusion to the fact that love comes from God and that God is love. And the logical conclusion is that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That's a logical deduction. It's a logical statement. It just necessarily follows. If love comes from God as the source, then all of those who are born of Him and possess His nature will manifest that nature through love. They will manifest the reality of the new birth through love. We've talked extensively about this in our study of 1 John. John has much to say about the new birth and of our being born of God. 
The text here could actually read, everyone who loves is born from God. It's that Greek preposition ek again. It denotes the fact that the nature that we now have as Christians comes from Him. We possess the nature of God. As I told you before, just as any true child possesses the genes of his parents, so we possess the nature and characteristic of our spiritual father, God. 2 Peter 1.4 tells us we are partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That does not mean what many heretics make it mean. doesn't mean you're a little God. That's heresy. What it does mean is that you possess the righteous character of God. There is a principle of life and holiness and righteousness planted within you at conversion. You have the life of God within you if you're a Christian. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, John said, His seed abides in us. His seed abides in us. We possess His seed, His spirit, and thus His nature. He said there in verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. True Christians can't go on and sin because it's contrary to their new nature in Christ. We talked about that. Back in chapter 2, verse 29, John said, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. To be born again is to possess the nature of God, the seed of God, the life of God. And since that nature is a righteous nature, we cannot go on in sin. We manifest righteousness. But in the same way, since that nature is love, we manifest the reality of that nature through love. John MacArthur says of believers, believers, they are God's children, manifesting His nature, and because of that, they will reflect His love to others. We reflect divine love. So everyone born of God will be marked by love. It'll be marked by the love of God. And that love, as we've noted before, displays itself in sacrifice, in service, in mercy, in grace, in forgiveness, in humility, and so on and so forth. True believers manifest that kind of love because they possess the nature of God. They are born of Him. So that's the benefit of love. It provides assurance of salvation. Assurance of the new birth. Assurance that you belong to God. As John said back in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. How do you know that you've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life? How do you know that you're born again, a true Christian headed for heaven? Because you now love. Your love life has been radically altered. There was a time in which you hated God, you hated righteousness, you hated the law of God, you hated the truth of God, you loved sin and yourself and your own agenda. But then at salvation, God radically changes your heart so that you love Him and His people. That's the benefit. It provides evidence of regeneration. Everyone then who loves is born of God. Everyone the Greek word pos denotes the whole of every kind. This is an exhaustive statement, a comprehensive statement, a universal categorical statement. There are no exceptions. Every person who displays the love of God can have confidence that he's born again. Every person who displays the love of God can be confident that he's born again. On the contrary, every person whose life is marked by the absence of love can be certain that he is not born again. That's the test. That's the test. And we've seen that many times already. Now, by the way, this does not mean that unbelievers can't show any degree of love at all. Right? We understand that. Because of the fact that they're created in the image of God... Because of common grace, even unbelievers can display some measure of human kindness and love to others. So when John says that everyone who loves is born of God, 
He's not meaning to say that unbelievers can't love at all. He's not meaning to say that just because someone shows some human kindness and love that they're automatically born again regardless of what they believe. What John says here is consistent with what he said elsewhere. What John says here is consistent with the other test of 1 John. John is talking about a peculiar kind of love here. He's talking about divine love. True Christian, God-like, Christ-like love can only be displayed by those who possess the nature of God, the children of God. I, Howard Marshall, writes, Human love, however noble and however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the Father and Son as the supreme objects of its affections. That's exactly right. True love that comes from God has as its greatest object God, and that love which is from God and for God will manifest itself in sacrificial service to others. John has made it clear throughout the letter that true Christian love produces faith in Christ, the true Christ. It produces obedience to God's commandments and sacrifice and service to others. That is divine love. It's a love that can only be expressed and reflected by those who are children of God. Max Anders notes that although unbelievers have some capacity to love because they are made in the image of God and common grace, he adds, yet true love, love that includes loving God and the full expression of love for others, is characteristic only of true Christians. That's love. That's divine love. Love that comes from God, for God, and expresses itself in sacrifice. Only true Christians can love in that way. It's a result of possessing the divine nature. So everyone who loves is born of God, and then John adds, knows God. Everyone who loves is born of God, and knows God. Those are two expressions that convey the glorious reality of salvation. To be born of God, as we've seen, is to possess the nature of God and to be in the family of God. To know God is to be in a saving relationship with Him through Christ. Saving communion, union with Him. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's eternal life. To know God is to be saved. To be in a saving relationship with Him. And no person can be in a saving relationship with a God who is love and not express love to others. It is impossible. As Calvin said, the true knowledge of God necessarily produces love in us. True knowledge of God necessarily produces love in us. The flip side comes in verse 8. Verse 7 is the positive statement. Verse 8 is the negative statement. Look at verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If the one who loves is born of God and knows God, then it just necessarily follows that the one who does not love does not know God. That is to say, that person is not a true Christian. That person is not saved. That person does not possess the nature of God, and he is not in a saving relationship with God. He may profess to be, he may claim to be a Christian, he may go to church, he may know Christian lingo, but he's deceived, he's deluded, he's bewitched, seduced. And he's going to hear those words, I never knew you, depart from me you who practice lawlessness. That's the case for those who profess to be Christians, but whose lives are marked by the absence of love. They are not true believers. For God is love. God is love. In other words, orthodoxy without orthopraxy is worthless. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is worthless. It's not enough to simply know the truth. You can have great theology and go to hell. That's a sober warning, isn't it? You can have great theology and go to hell. 
You could have a great Christology and yet be unsaved. You can believe in the inspiration and inerrancy and authority of the Scripture and yet be unconverted. If you're a master of Reformed theology, but you do not love, you are unconverted. You are unsaved. The problem is that you're not connected to the source. The source. If my phone isn't charging, I know because it's because it's not connected to the source. So if you aren't living a life of love, you know that you're not connected to the source. God is love. He's the source of love. And those who are connected to Him display His love. Daniel Aiken put it this way, love's source is in God, and as we love like God loves, we give evidence we are connected to the source. That's exactly right. Just as you know, your phone is connected when it's charging, you know you are in a saving relationship with God when you're loving. Love is the evidence of the new birth. By the way, quick caveat, what I'm not saying and what John is not saying is that love is a qualification for being born again. Love doesn't get you born again. Love is the evidence you're born again. Love is not the root of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. It's the evidence. But if your life is not marked by love, you are not in a saving relationship with God. That's a sober warning. It's a sober warning. What it means is that if your life is not marked by selfless, sacrificial service, increasing kindness, gentleness, mercy, forgiveness, etc., then you are not a true child of God. Because being in a saving relationship with God changes you. It radically alters your life. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, John said that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Then he went on and added in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You can't be in a saving relationship with a God who is light and yet walk in the darkness. You can't be in a saving relationship with a God who is holy and yet live in unholiness. And you can't be in a saving relationship with a God who is love and live a life that lacks love. It's impossible because just as light dispels the darkness, so love dispels hatred in the heart of a true child of God. Back in chapter 3, right after saying in verse 18, let us not love with the word or with tongue, but indeed in truth, verse 19 he adds, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before Him. That's the benefit of love. Do you want assurance of your salvation? Do you want confidence in your eternity? Do you want to know with certainty that you're a true Christian? Look at your life. How's your love life? What is it that characterizes your behavior? Is your life marked by selflessness or selfishness? Is it marked by grace or rudeness? Is it marked by forgiveness or grudges? Kindness or unkindness? Love or hatred? That's the test. That's the test. Those who love are born of God and know God. And those who do not love are not of God because God is love. So that's the second reason for love. Now let me give you one more. One more. We should love not only because of the source, God, and not only because of the benefit, assurance, but finally because of the example, the cross, the example of love. We see that in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. The word manifested there, the Greek word phenirao, we've seen it several times before in 1 John. It means to make clear, to make known, to make visible. Here it carries the idea of being put on display. John is saying, by this, the love of God has been put on display in us. The word in could be translated among us. It's best probably translated here as to us. God has manifested, demonstrated, displayed His love to us. How? How? The rest of verse 9. 
that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. How has God demonstrated His love toward sinners? Toward His people? By this. In the cross. In the giving of His Son selflessly, selflessly and sacrificially. The cross then becomes the greatest demonstration and display of divine love. It's a Trinitarian love. Trinitarian love. We, as Christians, get in on the Trinitarian love that has existed from eternity. It's amazing, isn't it? The cross displays the love of God the Father because it was the Father who planned the scheme of redemption from eternity in His mind. John Gill says that the plan of redemption was in God's breast from eternity. It was in the heart of God from eternity. It's God's eternal plan. And it's the Father who willingly gave His Son, the Son of His love, to die under His wrath for us. So we see the love of the Father. But the love of God the Son is also displayed in the cross because He is the one who willingly came down to earth as a man and suffered the wrath of God for us, who voluntarily gave Himself as a sacrifice for sinners. And then the love of God the Holy Spirit is demonstrated in the cross. He's the one who empowered Christ in His earthly ministry. He was involved in the resurrection. And He's the one that applies the redemptive work of Christ to our hearts and enables us to believe. So there is then a demonstration of Trinitarian love in the cross. But the love of the Father is specifically in view here. Look at the verse, verse 9 a little more closely. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God, that is the Father, the first person of the Trinity, has sent His only begotten Son, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten, the one who shares the very essence of God. He sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is the display of the Father's love. He gave His own Son. The one with whom He shared, along with the Holy Spirit, perfect communion throughout eternity, and He gave His Son to die for sinners. Why? So that we might live through Him. That we might have life. We were under the wrath of God. We were in a state of spiritual death. We were headed for eternal death in hell. But God crushed His own Son to save us from that death and give us life. Christ died so that we might live. Because of His sacrifice on the cross, we now have the life of God in our souls. That life was purchased for us by Christ. I told you several weeks ago, all grace is purchased grace. All saving grace is purchased grace. God, through Christ, purchased the right for us to have life in the cross. That's the love of God. This is life we cannot lose. Hence the name eternal. Last forever. It's perfect. Fellowship with the Father and the Son that will last forever and will enjoy the fullness of it hereafter. And this becomes then the greatest demonstration of love. Remember what John said back in chapter 3, verse 16? We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. That's love. Selfless, sacrificial service. Giving yourself up for another, that's love. That's 1 John 3.16, but there's another John 3.16 that we're all familiar with, isn't there? What does that verse say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. God the Father, out of His infinite love for sinners, crushed His own Son for their salvation. That's the glory of the Gospel, isn't it? That we might have life. Salvation from sin and judgment. That's love. Romans 5.8 puts it this way, after saying that one would hardly die for someone deemed to be a good man, Paul then added, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God 
has displayed his love in an unparalleled fashion because he crushed his own son for his enemy. For those who hated him. We were helpless, hopeless God-haters and God crushed His Son for our salvation. How about you? Would you do that? Sacrifice your life for an enemy? That's what God did in Christ. That is the magnificent love of the triune God giving Himself for us. Verse 10 really restates the same truth in a slightly different way. Look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. Supreme love is not seen in our love for God, but His love for His people. Again, God didn't send Christ to die for those who loved Him, but for those who hated Him. So John says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word, propitiation, is my favorite word in the whole Bible. My favorite word in the Bible. It's the Greek word, hilasmos. It's used in the Greek, a form of the word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in reference to the mercy seat. It's where the blood in the Old Testament would be poured out. The sacrificial animals, their blood would be poured out in the mercy seat as a symbol of atonement and satisfaction. John is saying, Jesus is our sacrifice of atonement. He's our atonement. He's our substitute. He's our mercy seat. The word means to appease, to satisfy, to placate, to turn away. Jesus is the one who bore the wrath of God for sinners to turn the wrath of God away from us. That's the Gospel. He satisfied divine justice. He exhausted the wrath of God. He was crushed. That's why He can be, in the language of Romans 3.26, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because His justice was satisfied. Every sin will be justly paid for. Every sin. Either by the sinner in hell or by the substitute on the cross. But every sin will be justly paid for. God will not sweep sin under the rug. He will deal with it. It's important to note, by the way, that the hour here, he says that he is the propitiation for our sins. That's only true believers. Those who repented and believed in Christ. And those who display the reality of their faith by love and obedience and so on. By passing the test of 1 John. Which means, if you're not a Christian this morning, you cannot claim this promise. If you're not a Christian, you are under the wrath of God at this moment. At this very moment, the God who created the hot sun, His wrath abides on you of every moment of every day, and it can only be exhausted and satisfied in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, my plea to you is that you would come to Christ and find life in Him. He is the propitiation for our sins. He drank down the wine cup of God's wrath so that not a drop remains for you if you're a Christian. There's no condemnation for those in Christ because Jesus took all of that condemnation for us on the cross. That's love. And that's the love that we're called to imitate. That's the third reason for love. And that becomes clear in the next verse. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, he uses that term, beloved. My dear brothers and sisters whom I love, if God so loved us selflessly and sacrificially, then we should love one another in the same way. We should give up ourselves for others. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 16, after saying, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, He then added, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to imitate divine love. So if God so loved you, brothers and sisters, may we emulate Him. May we display that love to others. So that's the third reason for love. The cross. The cross. 
We're called to love one another. And John gives us three very good reasons for love here. We we are to love one another because of the source of love, God, the benefit of love, assurance, and the example of love, the cross. God is love. He's the source of love. And all who are born of Him and know Him will express that love to others. So if you're a Christian, realize you're loved by God. Isn't that amazing? You know how sinful you've been. You know how sinful you were this morning. It's hard to get to church without committing enough sin to be worthy of damnation. And yet God loves you as a Christian. It's amazing. And your response should be to love others. So as we close this morning, what does your life look like? What does your life look like? Is it marked by delight in God's love for you? Is it marked by selfless, sacrificial service and kindness and love? Or is it marked by self-centeredness and selfishness and hatred? Again, we're not talking about perfection. We've made that clear. We're talking about direction. No one loves perfectly but God. But true Christians will display a real, increasing Christ-like love. So what then is the dominant pattern of your life? We must examine ourselves. If your life is marked by the absence of love, do not deceive your heart. Do not fancy yourself that God knows my heart. Because He does. That's the problem. And if your life is not marked by love, you're headed for destruction. So my plea today is that you would come to Christ, find salvation in Him, and then experiencing His love in Christ, you'll be enabled to love others. And if you feel that's you today, if you're convinced you're not a Christian, as always, I'm glad to counsel you after service as to the condition of your soul. Please come talk with me after service. But if you look at your life and you do see increasing Christ-like love, praise God. You can know with confidence that you're born again. That you know God. And no matter how hard of a week you had, no matter how badly you struggle with sin this week, no matter how good or bad your circumstances may be, you are loved by the triune God of Scripture. Rejoice in that. Delight in that. And then, out of the overflow of His love, let us love one another for our assurance in the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself and Your truth and Your plan of salvation with such clarity to us that there's no escaping its truthfulness. There's no escaping its logical conclusions and deductions. Your Word is clear. You have not left us in the darkness as to how we can know we're saved. We can know that we're Yours because our life is now marked by love. By love. I pray that that would be the case for each and every one of us. I pray for anyone here this morning who may not be truly converted, whose life may not be marked by divine love. I pray that You would radically save that person through the Gospel today and produce the fruit of Your love in their life. But help us, Lord, to display Your love for Your glory, we pray. Amen.